a really kind of a heavy, I think a heavy topic to discuss today. Uh, heavy and sensitive and very dangerous. You know, anytime you talk about uh, suffering, why bad things happen to good people, how, mo- how come there's so much injustice in the world, those kind of um, uh, major, major philosophical and emotional questions, there's always the danger of the conversation, instead of uh, providing an insight and progress, it could devolve very, very, very quickly. Um, there is a, a significant problem at the crux of this issue. And put it simply, the problem is that uh, as believers, we believe in, a, in God, obviously, but we also believe in a just God. We believe that God operates in justice. We say that in our prayers, and that is what we believe. Thus, when we see so much injustice in the world, it uh, obviously raises a very important question. How could you have a just God, yet so much injustice is present in the world? Now, the fact that there's injustice and the fact that there's pain and suffering is something which is ubiquitous throughout Jewish history. Of course, collectively as a nation, we've experienced more turmoil, more uh, inquisitions and expulsions and exiles and blood libels and holocaust and persecution and marginalization in every which way, more than any other uh, nation on the history, uh, in the history of the world, for sure. Uh, so collectively, us as Jews, we feel this is a very important issue for us as a nation, but even any person, everyone in the world, every person in the world at some point in some capacity is going to face some measure, some degree of challenges, of pain, of loss, of sadness, of tragedy. Thus, the question arises, and a question that we have to grapple with if we're going to take this issue seriously, what's the deal? What's the deal? What's the deal with all this pain and suffering? But, as I said, the one caveat, the one disclaimer is that when we talk about this issue, there's really two issues. And I feel like I'm the only man here in the room, so I should, uh, I'm like, a, I have to like be in my defenses, you know? There is a philosophical issue, and there's an emotional issue. Okay? So, when someone has something bad happen to him, there's a philosophical question that they should ask and they're encouraged to ask. And there's also emotional, and emotional questions that they're bound to ask as well. Which one is a harder question to answer? What do y'all think? Emotional. Much harder to answer that question. And therefore, I will attempt to not answer that question because I don't, I don't have a sufficient answer. I was talking to someone recently and they said, hey, I have a, um, I have a, a, a nephew. Uh, and the nephew is just going through a terrible, terrible illness. They have some sort of uh, terminal uh, cancer. They, you know, their child's seven years old. And what do you say? I said to them, I have no idea. I'm not equipped. I no, what do you say? What do you say to parents? whose child has done nothing wrong and is experiencing such pain. It's an, it, it's, the, the emotional question is a question and it shall remain a question even after tonight's discussion. Uh, that being said, I, the, the, Torah, uh, the Torah tells us uh, about Abraham. Remember, remember Abraham? Oh, yeah. uh, we remember him, right? So what happened with Abraham? His wife, what was his wife's name? That's right. His wife's name was Sarah and she died. And what happened? At, what was the aftermath of Sarah's death? Anyone remembers? Was she like super old when she died. She was super old. But what happened afterwards? Abraham set aside some time to eulogize his wife and to cry and mourn over her. 
Exactly. And the question is, wait a minute, Abraham, Abraham is the paragon of philosophy. Abraham is the founder of the greatest intellectual idea that has changed mankind more than any other idea. And that is the idea of monotheism. Abraham is someone who should be able to treat the pain and suffering of death of his wife cerebrally, intellectually, you would think. Well, because he's someone who's dominated by his intelligence. Yet the Torah goes out of its way to tell us that even Abraham, even someone who is so dominated by his intelligence, he treated the issue emotionally as well. Go ahead. I already have a problem. Let's go. So, why is Abraham dominated by his the idea of modern, I mean, clearly he's a thinker, right? Because he Absolutely. the status quo and he says, Absolutely. you know, all this pagan or whatever, not pagan. Yes, pagan, pagan, pagan worlds, yes. Yeah, so worshiping idols, this makes no sense, there's one God. He, he, yes. That, that, okay, I can see how you would say that's an intellectual process. Yes. But also, I feel like inherently there's something emotional and spirit, spirit, spirituality seems inherently tied up in emotion. Uh, absolutely, but the world was not lacking spirituality at the time. The world was very spiritual. The paganistic uh, rituals were very spiritual. And that's not where his innovation lied. His innovation lied in his, number one, his, his idea. Number two, in how he debated the idea. Abraham spent his whole life going from town to town and arguing with, the, you know, in town square. That's what he did. Uh, so, he wasn't denying I'm not saying that. I'm just that. I was bringing this. This is a side point. My, my side point is that even Abraham, capable of tremendous intellectual accomplishments, does not ignore the very the present emotional crises that happened uh, in in the wake of tragedy. That's my only point. So my point is yes. Go ahead. Yeah, I I I, I agree. I agree. It's exactly, and that's why, by the way, in our in our religion, we have a shiva. You know, in, in you know, God forbid, if someone's uh, someone's uh, a child loses a parent, so what do they do out there in the, in the in the greater society? What do they? What happens when a kid loses a parent? They say, oh, let's buy him a PlayStation. Let's get him a Game Boy. Let's give him an iPad. So like he should be able, you know, let's let's try to cover up that they shouldn't experience the pain. The problem is, like you said, that when there is pain that's dormant and is not addressed, it will eventually resurface and it'll be much worse. Thus, in Judaism, we say we have seven days of mourning. Right? You sit down on the floor and you and you and you take on the pain. You know, grab it by the horns. You address it. You don't ignore it, and that is a path to towards recovery. So, yes, the emotional pain that's experienced in the wake of tragedy is real. And uh, even uh, even the Jewish response to that pain is to address it. Um, I have a, a wonderful quote that I pulled from Facebook. There was a, a story here. Listen to this. This is a great story. I love this quote. Um, it's kind of long, but I'll read it to you. I just did copy-paste. So there was a terrible tragedy in our community um, a couple of months back. There was a young boy who, about, who from, child, from childbirth had a very rare disease called glycogen storage disease, uh, which means oh, his body... Glycogen. glycogen, thank you. Glycogen storage disease. Uh, his, bo- his body didn't... I'm sorry, go ahead. Right, so his body didn't produce enough protein, whatever, he had to eat food 
every a certain amount of food every three hours. He missed it. He was in danger. Uh, in danger of losing his life, literally. So every three hours, uh, 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 you know, on on the button, right? So some some kids they. Sugar, basically. sugar, yes. Right. So most of us, like when we break down food, like proteins and fats, like we immediately break them down and store them. And if you can't store glycogen, there's no storage for you. Yeah. You must have been very low weight. Yes, that's what, so anyhow, what happened was is that his, basically it was a miscommunication and his father and his mother, uh, one of them went out of town, the other one thought he missed, he missed the feeding. Three hours. Kid who had a bar, his bar mitzvah a week earlier tragedy and he died and it was a disaster it was just it was just so but so anyhow so right after he died someone posted this on facebook someone who was very involved with the family uh and i and i took it because i think this is raw a raw emotional response to tragedy um and and this, he's asking questions and this is you know he's asking questions and i and this is the question that has to be asked emotionally after uh, after after tragedy, are you ready? Let's go. WTF? That's how it starts. WTF? I don't know. I guess I don't know what that stands for. Uh, yeah, I can't find it. Okay. Um, WTF? Does God want from us already? We try to be good Jews. Thousands of years in Gullus. Gullus means exile. You keep taking them away from us, God. You expect us not to question you. Expect us to sit there quietly while you constantly give punishments to the beautiful. There is a lot you have to answer for. I am allowed to be chutzpah. Just because you created me, there is a lot of injustice in this world. You have such sick perverts, deranged people out there. You keep them alive, but beautiful soul, souls that did nothing wrong. You take them, you take them. no explanation. You do as you wish. It is your world. But it's not right to hurt people that way. I'm sorry you call, you call it just. And yes, my eyes may be small, but I also have what's called a heart. To know the good should stay, take the evil away. Mendel, that was the name of the boy. Mendel is a light to the world. Mendel was a piece of sugar. Mendel was good to everyone. His parents, grandparents are amazing people. To do this, why are you getting off on it? Do you like to see good people suffer? I am sorry. I always do what you tell me. By the way, there's not a single punctuation mark or anything like that. I'm just putting in the commas and question marks uh, myself. I'm sorry. I always do what you tell me. I always am good, but enough with your anger towards the Jewish people. You have caused us so much heartache. You call us your children. Treat us like it. You have punished us enough. Now, now, like a parent, reward your children. To be like this, whoa, where did this come from? Uh, but this is a raw emotional response. And I, and I think that he's asking her to a question. But this is not a philosophical debate. This is, this is in the spur of the moment. And this is a very, very hard question to try to answer. What I want to talk about today is some of the classical Jewish responses to the philosophical issue. Uh, the philosophical, how is it possible that a just God does injustice? How is that possible? How is that compatible? Uh, there is one way, oh, essentially, this, this um, contradiction can be reconciled in, in a few different ways. Um, there, um, someone told me once that they, uh, one of the local rabbis in town uh, said that uh, when asked the question of where was God in the Holocaust, he said, oh, well, God wasn't there. That's my response as well. You know, that's a way to try to avoid the problems. You know, but then, then you run into a bigger philosophical problem. What do you mean? How could God? God doesn't take days off. So, assuming God is there, what's going on? How do we understand it? You know. So, the Talmud spends a lot, a lot, a lot of time and effort. 
to try to um, uh, unravel and untangle this uh, important question. Thus, I wanted to examine some of the, of the sources. There's more sources that I left out. Because I found some very interesting patterns that I think are, uh, like I said, number one, interesting, but no, also, num- number two, very insightful as to some of the, uh, or, or the kind of the direction that, uh, that uh, is taken by the traditional Jewish sources in this issue. But also, it's going to underscore, I think, the problem that we're going to experience to try to accept it. So we'll have the answer, but we'll also have the answer as to why it's difficult for us to have the answer. Yes, go ahead. Yes. Why is it that we have this idea of a just God? Okay, that's a good question. Um, it was what well, because the Christians have the idea of, of, of God being multiple parts. Uh, and then there's the good and there's the evil and the Satan. You know, that's a certain uh, divine element that is uh, independent. Uh, but Jewish philosophy, Jewish theology uh, talks always about a just God. Like we have on Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, we talked, we're going to read it in a couple of weeks, in, in a couple of weeks, and we're going to read it in Exodus, where God tells Moses um, the, the 13 attributes of mercy. Do you remember that? In the aftermath of the golden calf, Kel Rachum Vachanun, we say, God is, is merciful, God is, uh, is benevolent. The Jewish God is always portrayed as, not always portrayed, but uh, essentially portrayed as being just, being fair, um, being incapable of being swayed. That's the idea. Um, so, so yes, so, so that's the definition. Yeah, like I said, it's a preliminary question. I think the Christians probably have less of a problem with this question because they're not dealing with the same absolute just God that we have. That, but that's not, not God. So that's that's, that's not God. That's itself that you said that Hashem can't be swayed because Mo- Moses swayed him well, on, I, well, on the mountain. Oh, oh okay. Well, be, through prayer, you're saying. When I meant Hashem can't be swayed, it means he doesn't have um, like emotions. He's not fickle. That's what I meant. Of course, prayer can make an impact. Prayer can change reality. Um, you know, prayer could, you know, Sarah gets... Uh, Rebecca, Rebecca gets pregnant, you know, do prayer in, in Genesis. So yes, uh, the, what I meant was not that God can't be swayed, but that God does not have the emotions that make uh, unpredictable, irrational, or random decisions. So it's not random, it's calculated. You know, maybe calculated is a better, is a better question. How could injustice happen when there's a calculated God? That's probably a better question. It was calculated yeah. for Hashem to want to kill the entire Hebrew race after the golden cow. That's what it seems like. That's what it seems like. And then, or, or if, you know, forget about what God wanted to do. Uh, you know, we see lots and lots of genocide in, 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 in human history, and, and that's a question, and it's a legitimate question. I'm not going to try to answer that question here sitting, you know, it was, it's not a question that you try to answer just in one sitting. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complex issue. But not only uh, um, the idea of, 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 of the Hebrews dying, but the reality, you know, like, uh, and even one person dying. Um, the stale doesn't really matter. This is an important point, by the way. I, um, once you're dealing with the core philosophical issue that injustice ought not to happen, it doesn't matter what the stale is. 
It doesn't matter if it's a million people dying or if it's a one person dying or one person essentially stubbing their toe. It's the same question at the core. For us, it looks different, you know. But for um, essentially at the root of the philosophical problem, the question would apply regardless of the scale of the pain or the tragedy, the suffering. Regardless of this, well, why is there injustice? You know, I, w- I once heard someone saying very crudely, by the way, I, I don't, this is not my position on the issue. But I heard this guy saying, listen, the question of why bad things happen to, go- to good people, essentially, is the same question whether someone stubs their toe or the Holocaust. It's a very crude way to say something. And it's obviously, I, I don't, someone else said that. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> <laughs> Don't kill the messenger. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's obviously, it's a very crude way to say it, but to a certain degree, he's right. At the core of, uh, of, of this philosophical problem, the scale of the injustice doesn't matter. Okay, so that's what we're going to try to do, guys. What do you all say? You see, I, I have never seen a more eager group. What do you say? Let's go. We're digging to source number one? Yeah, yeah. Let's go. Okay. <laughs> Okay, this is from the Talmud in Menachos. Yeah, it was Menachos. What does Menachos mean? Anyone knows what Menachos mean? We have a Hebrew speaker here. What does Mincha mean? Don't you speak Hebrew? No. No? You speak a little Hebrew. I was just born in Israel. You Israel. You should. Okay. I know there's Mincha Mari, but I don't remember. Mincha. Okay, so Mincha. Um, well, a mincha is a kind of offering that they used to do in the temple. Oh, sacrificial. Uh, well, it wasn't a sacrifice. It was an offering of uh, a flower offering. Can I just ask you, why did you think it's the Hebrew? I, used, I knew you were born in Israel. I figured, I don't know. You don't speak any Hebrew? No. Kulum? I know, I know. Like, Ptzat? You, yeah. Ptzat. Yes, very little. Dana, some Hebrew? <laughs> I'm from New York. <laughs> I was not from New York. I don't know. He's from New York. Yeah, exactly. I was just, I'm just kidding. I'm, just, I'm not trying to pressure you. Isabel, anything? A little Hebrew? Oh. Oh, wow. Okay, so, so a, a mincha. So a, a mincha is a, is, a, um, is a flower offering from the temple. So it's like flour and oil, whatever. Um, so the book uh, that talks about the Talmud is called Menachos. And in the middle, in 29b, it is a very fascinating narrative what happened with Moses when he ascended to heaven um, that we read actually in last week's Parsha uh, during the National Revelation of Mount Sinai. Everyone familiar with Mount Sinai experience that commandments. Moses goes up, doesn't come down for 40 days and 40 nights. And the Talmud recounts a dialogue that he had with the Almighty. So Moses ascends to heaven. He finds the Almighty. By the way, this is my translation. I apologize. I know I made a few uh, mistakes. I read it over. I'm like, oh, I made a few mistakes in writing. So we'll just fix those. Moses ascends to heaven. He finds the Almighty sitting and tying crowns of top letters. If you open a Torah scroll, you'll find that the words, uh, that the letters, uh, Shin, Tet, Nun, and uh, Zion, Gimel, and Tet, they have little crowns on top of them. Everyone familiar with that? So Moses goes and sees the Almighty uh, putting crowns on top of letters. And he says to them, what's going on? Why do you need to do that? Who is obstructing your way, Moses says. Like, what prevents you? Like, why do you have the need to kind of make these little colorings on top of the letters? So God responds, 
there's a man who will be in the future after seven generations, and his name is Akiva ben Yosef, Akiva, the son of Yosef, who will derive piles and piles of laws from every little tick of the uh, of the letters. And therefore, to accommodate him, I'm making these crowns on top of the letters. Uh, so Moses, Moses says to God, show him to me. I want to see him. I want to see him. I want to see this Rabbi Akiva, this great Rabbi Akiva. Let me see him. So God responds, go back. And he went, and suddenly Moses is apparated. He is transplanted into the room, the lecture hall of Rabbi Akiva. And he's sitting there at the end behind eight rows of students. And Rabbi Akiva is lecturing, and he does not understand a word that he's saying. And he says, the law, and Moses doesn't understand. He says, another law, Moses doesn't understand. Until finally, and Moses is all depressed, finally Rabbi Akiva arrives at a certain matter, and his students say, wait a minute, where's the source of this matter? And Rabbi Akiva responds, it is a law of Moses, to Moses from Sinai. Halacha lemoshe misinai, which means it's a law to Moses from Sinai. Moses hears that, and Moses is happy. And Moses goes back to God, and... He tells God and says, Almighty Master of the world, you have, oh gosh, you have a man, I took out the word have, you have a man such as this and you give the Torah via me. Moses says to God, why are you giving the Torah through me? Give it through Rabbi Akiva. God says to him, silence, so it was deemed in my mind. God doesn't really give him a, a sufficient answer. Uh, again, Moses asked another question. Master of the world, you showed me his Torah. Now show me his reward. He says, go back. And he went and he saw that they were flaying his skin with combs. Uh, he said to God, Master of the world, is this, this is the Torah and this is the reward? Is it fear? Look what happened to the great Rabbi Kivan. He's being punished so terribly. God responded, silence. So it was deemed in my mind. So that is the Talmud. Now, what's important to note is that every little um, sentence in the Talmud is analyzed by all the commentators. What it means, eight rows. What does it mean, silence? Don't ask questions. So it so it aroused in my, so it, so it came up in my mind. All these things are discussed now. But at the core of this, at the core of this dialogue, is really Moses. Is really two things. Moses asked God, "You showed me Rabbi Kiva's Torah." Show me his reward. And what does God show him? His suffering, his pain, his punishment. Right? Rabbi Akiva lived in the times of Hadrian, the emperor Hadrian. And the Hadrianic persecutions, the emperor Hadrian was perhaps more, um, his mistreatment of the Jews perhaps superseded that of all the villains in Jewish history. Uh, he uh, he commanded, for example, no anyone studies Torah publicly will get executed. Any woman who has her son circumcised, the the, the woman and the child will be tied. The child, with, I apologize, will be tied around her neck and they'll be shoved off cliffs. Terrible, terrible stuff that happened uh, during that time. Uh, that is actually a time. Uh, just a little bit of history here. I'm speaking a little quickly. I apologize. I'm speaking that because I want to get it all done. I don't want to take you guys over time. So that is during the time of the Bar Kokhba revolt. If you know a little bit about uh, the history of Israel, uh, Jewish history, um, or Roman history, Roman Empire history, uh, during the 500 years of Roman dominion over basically uh, all the civilized world, you know that only once were the Romans uh, kicked out of, of, of land and a native uh, di- uh, um, indigenous people uh, established sovereignty. That happened near 132 under the leadership of a fellow by the name of Shimon Bar Kokhba, who, according to most uh, historians, 
started a revolt, the Bar Kokhba revolt, in response to Hadrian, the Emperor Hadrian's uh, marginalization of the Jewish people at that time. Uh, so from the year 132 to 135, they established sovereignty over Israel, the Jews did, uh, and they even minted coins. Uh, we have till this day, we have uh, coins that uh, that have pictures of Bar Kokhba and you know, in fact, the 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 Israeli coinage that we have today, they have these pictures on them that were just directly taken off the coins that they found from Bar Kokhba. That cool little tidbit. Anyhow, afterwards, after the the, the rebellion was quelled in the year one thirty five, uh, uh, Hadrian began a systematic uh, attempt to disassemble the Jewish nation. And what he did was, he started at the top. He took the Jewish leadership and publicly, viciously uh, executed all the great rabbis at the time. One of them was the famous Rabbi Akiva, who was who had his skin flayed. That's why he died. A really terrible, horrible, gruesome, uh, a gruesome way to go. Really bad. So Moses asked God, where is Rabbi Akiva's reward? And what does he see? He sees Rabbi Akiva being flayed. And the obvious question is, wait a minute. We asked for a reward. Not punishment. What did you show us? You showed us punishment. What's going on? Does it make any sense? Well, the reward is, is certainly positive. Like the question Moses asked, you showed me his Torah. Let's see the reward for the Torah. And he sees, he sees he's being punished. What's going on? And question number two, I think, that we have to ask uh, upon reading this Talmud is... Uh, if you look at the next question that Moses asks, he says, "Is this is the Torah, this is the reward? And what does God respond? Quiet, silence. This is the way I think. So it was deemed in my, in my mind. They were threatened by what he was accomplishing, so they killed him off. So he succeeded to get through to people. That's what God was saying. Oh, maybe. You're saying that his reward was that he, had a, he, he was a martyr and he had a place in Jewish history. Well, it's, it's against Judaism to try to become a martyr, but we have the laws of Kiddush Hashem, of dying for the sake of heaven, uh, where, uh, where the, like we have the three cardinal sins that we have to give, give up our lives and not, and not transgress. And they are, number one, murder. If someone says, hey, you take this gun and shoot your friend. Right? If you don't do it, I'm going to put you down. Right? What are you supposed to do? Bite the bullet. Number one. Number two, adultery. Right? We say, if someone says, oh, commit adultery... It's one of the things you have to give up your life not to transgress. And lastly is idolatry. Those are the three big ones in, in, in Jewish law. So we do have the concept of, uh, of martyrdom. And in fact, um, the martyrs are considered in very high regard. Someone who gives up their life for the sake of heaven is someone who, did, who, who gave up all, sacrificed everything uh, for what they believe. So I like that idea. I didn't even think about that. that. Maybe Rabbi Ativa's reward was the fact that he is... Uh, forever uh, ensconced in, in, in Jewish immor- immortality as a martyr. That's very clever. I didn't think of that. That's his reward. It's still problematic because it's still not reward. Maybe. Uh, it's a good question. It's a good point. Clever. Very clever. Thank you. Um, but question number two, I think, very, very, very important and crucial to our discussion. Moses asked God a fundamental question. The same question that us today, 2015 in Houston, potentially should ask. Why do bad things happen to good people? Rabbi Kiva, clearly a good person. 
This is the famous Rebbe Tiva. He was the uh, the leader of the, of the people at the time, the leader of the people when they were the most vulnerable. A mere uh, 50, 60 years after uh, after the destruction of the temple and the slaughter of millions of Jews on the hands of the Romans, uh, he was at the forefront of the effort to rehabilitate a broken nation, to rebuild from the ashes. That's who he was. Great Rabbi Kiva, he had 24,000 students, even though he started off his life as an ignoramus. He only started learning Hebrew. In fact, at the age of 40, he couldn't read Hebrew. Gives us all hope. <laughs> uh, he started at nothing, yet he became so great. So he was clearly a good person, and he, you know, he was punished, or he, he experienced pain at a very high degree. So Moses asked him, wait a minute, this is the Torah, and this is the, and, 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 uh, and this is the reward? And what did God respond? Quiet. Silence. Don't ask questions. So it was the, what kind of answer is that? What kind of answer is that? Moses asked a legitimate question. Give him a legitimate response. That's the source number one. Let's move on to source number two. And this is also from the Talmud. And this is from the tractate Brachos. The Talmud is comprised of how many books? Anyone knows? Give me a guess. Random guess, just first number. Uh, Any other guesses? Just throw out a number from zero to uh, 63. That's the number. 63. It's enormous. Yeah. So the 63 books of the Talmud, the very first one of them is called, there's an order, 163. The very first one of them, that's right, this is uh, the complete works of the Talmud. Yeah, it's. Um, it's a copious, voluminous amount of... of I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, so the very first one of them is a book... Uh, the very first one of them is called Brachos. And the word Bracha means blessing. Like Bruchim Abayim, blessing unto those who come. Uh, and it talks about blessings. We know that there's... Uh, in Jewish law, there's lots of blessings before you eat food, after you eat food, when you see a rainbow, when you hear thunder, etc., etc. Very, very detailed, all the laws of Jewish blessing. In the book, we find on page 7a, a once again, a dialogue. This is, this is source number two on your, on your sheets. Uh, we find a dialogue between Moses and the Almighty. It says as follows, Rabbi Yochanan said the name of Rabbi Yossi, Three things Moses asked the Almighty and he gave him. There was three times that Moses asked a question of the Almighty and the Almighty responded. And I just cut out some of the... Um, I just got to our point that I wanted to bring. He asked to know the ways of God and he gave him. As scripture states, inform me of your ways. In Exodus chapter 13, I believe it's verse either 13 or 14. I don't remember. One of those two. Uh, it says, Moses asked God, let me know your ways. Inform me of your ways. What did he ask? What ways did Moses want to know? Moses said to God, this is what he wanted to know. Why is there a righteous person and it is good for him? A righteous person and it is bad for him. A wicked person and it is good for him. A wicked person and it is bad for him. Essentially, Moses is asking the same question. The same question that he asked previously in the, in the form of Rabbi Akiva he asks again here a little bit more broadly. Number one, why is it some, some righteous people and they have it good, but then there's some righteous people and they have it bad. Bad things happen to good people. 
He also asked in the converse. How come bad people, there are some bad people that it's good for them, and some bad people that's indeed bad for them? Uh, so it's kind of more of an expanded question, but it seems like he's asking the same question again, uh, essentially. And, and now, what does God tell them? Right? How does God respond to this? Does God say, silence, hush, don't ask questions? Or does God give them an answer? God gives them an answer. What does God say this time? So God responded, a righteous person, and it is good for him. That's a, that's a, a completely righteous person. A righteous person, and it is bad for him. That's a partially righteous person. A wicked person, and it is good for him. A partially wicked person. A wicked person, and it is bad for him. A completely, that should say, that should say wicked. I apologize, there's a mistake. A completely wicked person. Thus, God gives them an answer. When you see a righteous person, and, and that's good for them, it means they're completely righteous, Right? Not having any negative, any nothing bad to them, then the righteous person is good for them. If you see a righteous person is bad for them, our question: bad things happen to good people. They're not really hundred percent good. They have a little smidgen of, of of. They're only partially righteous, but they have other things which are other misdeeds that they have to atone for, and therefore they have to receive punishment. There, so they have they have to receive uh, pain. They have to receive suffering. Why not? Oh, no, we'll get the children in a second. That's a good question. That's a very good question. I, that, that's that's. That's right. That's right. Kids is a different discussion. Um, let's see. If, let's see. Um, let's see if we can finish this, and we'll get to kids. And that's a very good question. But um, let's try to let's try to evaluate the source material on its own merit. I agree with your question. It's a legitimate question. I don't believe that we're talking about children in this context. Yeah, we're talking about people in general. So let's try to understand what the source, uh, what is the, what, what is the position before you um, um, give me. I, I see some skepticism here in the crowd. What does it mean? It is good. Like it means like things are going well. Yeah, good things are happening to them. Things are working out for them. No, no pain, no suffering. Good things happen to good people. So that's someone who's completely righteous. Bad things happen to good people. That's someone who's only partially righteous. Now, why? Why would someone uh, who is partially righteous, why would they have bad things happen to them? So this is explained in in, in, in source number three. Once again, it's, uh, it's back to Rabbi Akiva. And Rabbi Akiva, um, I don't want to go through the whole source because I don't want to run out of time. I want to get to our final point. But Rabbi Akiva is going to visit his, his teacher, and his teacher is really going through a really painful illness. And Rabbi Akiva starts laughing when he hears about the illness. And all of his friends say, wait a minute, why are you laughing? You're, you see your teacher there who's, who's twisting and squirming in pain, and why are you laughing? It doesn't seem like this is something funny at all. So he says... All the time that I saw our teacher's wine not ferment, his flax not uh, smitten, and his oil not spoil, i.e., every all the time I saw that our teacher had everything going for him, it was all good. I was worried. I was. I said, perhaps God forbid, our teacher received his reward in this world. Now that I see him in pain, I'm happy. So, what this is really opening up uh, another element, and that is 
that according to Jewish philosophy, this world that we see here today on planet Earth as humans comprised of a soul and a body is not the only thing we have. We believe in the afterlife. Now, afterlife has, has lots of, the word has lots of, uh, of, of meaning behind it. But the idea of our actions having eternal consequence is an idea that the Talmud clearly believes in very strongly. And in fact, it's part and parcel of, of, of Jewish philosophy uh, that the Almighty uh, makes uh, people accountable for their misdeeds. You know, The Almighty is fair to the degree where Hitler and Mother Teresa don't have the same status now. Everyone has to pay for their actions and they're held accountable for their actions. And, and conversely, uh, people receive what they're due uh, for their positive actions. Therefore, says Rabbi Ativa, when I see our teachers suffering, I know that they are paying for their misdeeds. He is paying for his misdeeds in this world. Now, why would you want to pay for your misdeeds in this world? Because the exchange rate is very favorable. If I told you, hey, you got a driving ticket and you have to pay 100, but you can pay either pesos or dollars. What do you rather? You rather pay those pesos, right? Right. You, you, want, you want to pay 100 rupees or 100 dollars? Take the rupees, right? That's like four cents. Getting payment, everything in the next world is magnified. Therefore, if someone has to get pain, has to get punished, has to be accountable for even slight misdeeds, way, way better off getting getting it in this world. Therefore, Rabbi Kiva is so delighted. Look, I'm so happy. I can't be happier. I'm laughing. I'm falling off my my face with laughter. Why? Because I see my my Rebbe's, my teacher suffering. Why? Because now I know that his, his, his status in the world to come will be not uninfringed and uninhibited and not lacking anything. So this is the basic idea. The basic idea is when someone is completely righteous, without a single fault, without a single misdeed, without a single negative character, completely, perfectly good, they have a good in this world and next world. But if someone's partially righteous, now partially righteous to mean even someone who is as righteous as the great Rebbe Yezer, the teacher of Rebbe Tiva. But if you have even a little bit, right, then you're only partially righteous. Not completely. If you're not 100%, it's not complete, right? Anything less than 100% is not 100%, so it's partial. So if you're 99.99% righteous and the tiny little bit, 0.001% wicked, you're going to have to pay for that. You want to pay in pesos, you want to pay in dollars. You want to pay in rupees, you want to pay in dollars. You want to pay... Oh, we'll get to it. We'll come. We'll bring it all for a circle. Oh, that's exactly where we're going here. Okay. Would you rather pay in shekels or in British pounds? Right. You want to make sure that you do not extinguish, uh, or or that you get your punishment in this world and not in the next world. That's the idea. What the Talmud is trying to convey. And here is where it gets interesting, because let's yeah, go ahead. Oh, maybe, maybe. Let's stop for a second here. Let's go back to our original source. And I'm going through the material a little fast because I don't want to go over time. Let's go back to our original source. Moses asked the Almighty, you showed me Rabbi Kiva. You showed me his Torah. Show me his reward. What does he show him? Pain. Pain and suffering. Wait a minute. I asked for reward. Perhaps what the Talmud is really saying and what God is trying to tell Moses. Moses, you should know that at the deepest level, the way I see the world, so to speak, God says, 
Where is Rabbi Tiva's reward? The greatest reward that he could possibly have is to take the exchange rate, to pay the fine in pesos. That's the greatest reward. And you look at it and you say, wait a minute, this is suffering. This is not reward. Yes, it is suffering. But to get the reward here guarantees that in the real eternal world, there's nothing lacking. Number one. Number two. I see skepticism. Every time you say this, you see skepticism. Wait a minute, Rabbi Walby, are you trying to tell me that there's nothing, there's no greater reward in the world than to have your skin flayed? I'm skeptical. I'm dubious. And you know what? So am I. And you know what? So is Moses. What does Moses say? This is the Torah, and this is the reward? Almighty God, how can this be reward? His skin's being flayed. How can this be reward? What does God tell him? Silence. This is the way my mind deemed. This is how, I, this is the way I think. God's telling him, you're, Moses, you're a great guy. The greatest man that ever lived was Moses. Even Moses, even you, will not be fully, not fully understand this. For us as humans, it's very hard for us to think the way God thinks. God is entirely spiritual. We're a mix. Right? We're predominantly physical. We have a spiritual element, but we're predominantly physical. Why? Because our body overrides our soul almost every single time. We think very geocentrically, if you will. We think in a physical way. Thus, for someone to, to tell us about this other world, yes, it's a nice idea, but for us, what's tangible, what's real? What we see, what we touch, what we encounter uh, in this world. Even Moses. Moses says, no, 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 Moses. Even you. For you to understand this, this is the way I think God tells him. In my view, the greatest reward possible is to get your... But you, even Moses, you're not going to understand this. This is the way my mind works, not yours. Thus, if we have a hard time accepting it, we're in good company. Because we're with Moses in our lack of understanding this completely. Now, let's move over to source number two. What happened to source number two? So, source number two. We just did source number one again and source number two. Moses asked God the same question. Now, I, we know, like, in the military, all you need to do is ask a question once. You can ask it twice. And we also know historically, if you look at the beginning of source number one, it says, when Moses ascended to heaven. This is, at, this is during the Mount Sinai experience. It's time stamping. You know exactly when it happened. Source number two, that is from Exodus 33. That is merely a one month after Moses ascended to heaven. So if you ask God a question, and God gave you whatever he told you, the answer, whatever answer he told you, does it make sense one month later to ask the same question? It doesn't. Huh? He did. Okay, but essentially it's the same question. Why would Moses ask the same question? Okay, maybe, maybe, but let's look at this from a deeper level. Getting a different answer, getting different. Let's different let, let, let this is this is getting fascinating. Context. This is fascinating. When I when I when I when I hit when I hit this, like I was like, whoa, I paid dirt. This is fascinating. What happened to Moses when he went down from heaven? Sorry, I pulled my tie. My noose. What happened to Moses when he went down from heaven? When he went down from, from the mountain. What did he see? Golden calf. What, what, what happens? God says, I'm destroying the people, like you mentioned. Uh, that's right. 
God's not destroying the people. Moses intercedes upon their behalf. He goes up again. He comes back down again. What happened that time? Certain people died. Well, before that, Moses' face was glowing. We know Moses had to wear a mask from the time uh, of, the, of the Sinai till he died 40 years later. Moses wore a mask. Why? Because his face was shining like the sun. The misnomer that Jews have horns comes from the verse in Exodus, chapter 34, that says, Ki karan or panav. And if you know a little Hebrew, you know the word karen means a horn. And it's spelled the same way as karan, not koran, not like the book, but koran means it's it, it illuminated. Moses' face was illuminated. And in fact, the Talmud says, Pnei Moshe, the face of Moshe was like the face of, of the sun. Moses, in the interim, had achieved a level in spiritual accomplishment that was never achieved before that and, not, and, never, and never achieved afterwards. The sun, we know that the sun is always a, uh, an expression used for soul, for the soul. Why? Because if you try to look at the sun, what happens? Try staring at the sun uh, tomorrow afternoon. You know, tomorrow afternoon might be a little cloudy. You can't look at it. Why? Because it's, it, it has a spiritual element that it, it's beyond us. We're physical. We cannot perceive it. Moses, his, 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 his soul was shining forth. He had achieved a level where his, his physicality was dimmed, so to speak, and his soul was the predominant element in his life. Thus, Moses now, even though it's only a month after he asked the question, he says, you know what? God told me last time, don't ask this question. You don't understand it. It's beyond you. You're physical. You don't understand. This is the way I think. Now Moses says, wait a minute. It's a month later. I'm at a much higher spiritual level. Now I'm, I'm spiritual first. My face is glowing. This is, this, is, this is a level of spirituality un, uh, untreaded upon by any human since creation. And since then, we have no one has yet reached that, that, that height. Thus Moses says, maybe now I will understand it. And he asks the question again. And then God tells him, you know, now I'll tell you the answer. The idea being, these sources tell us not only what the answer is to, the, to this problem, and that is the way God sees it, the greatest reward someone could possibly have in the world is to have punishment and have pain and have suffering in the most terrible, tragic way. That's the way God sees it. Why? Because that's going to mitigate their, uh, their, their pain that they're going to experience in the next world. We'll get to your question about kids in a second. I see that's obviously that's the obvious uh, next question. But for us, it's very, very hard for us to be at harmony with that issue. Right? It's not going to be easy for us. And even Moses, at a certain point in his life, God told him, you want to really understand this issue? You can't. Silence. This is the way God thinks. This so it was deemed in my mind. This is the way I see it. You're, you're almost precluded from fully understanding it. But, but the idea... We understand it, but we also understand why we're, we're going to be limited in our complete integration of this idea into our consciousness. Moving on to your question. What do you do about kids? The truth, the best answer that I could possibly give is to say I don't know. However, I'm going to tell you an idea that maybe will provide some illumination. Perhaps um, there was a... Uh, my paternal grandfather, I'm going to go over time here, I'm very conscious about that, I apologize. Paternal grandfather was a um, great rabbi who lived in Israel, his name was Shlomo. Shlomo, or Rabbi Shlomo, we Google him. Very influential. Oh, well, yes. Anyhow, so he died in 2005, 10 years ago. And 
You know, I, I have like, uh, I don't know, maybe 50 cousins that are also his grandchildren. Fairly large family. Um, so, uh, I have a cousin who lives in Israel who had a, uh, a child a mere six months after my grandfather died. And of course, if you have a son after your esteemed, illustrious grandfather just passed away, you're going to want to name him after him, you would think, right? So they named the child Shlomo. Wonderful. They're delighted. They're excited. They're fired up there. And unfortunately, three months later, the child died of sudden infant death death syndrome. Crib death. Disaster. Tragedy. What do you say? You know? It's just terrible, right? My uncle, who lives in New York, wrote them a letter, um, a consolation letter. And uh, he wrote as follows. He said uh, that uh, our grandfather, the deceased, uh, the elder deceased, he grew up in a family uh, where the Torah ideals were not necessarily the most important thing in in their lives. You know, my my great-grandfather... Rabbi Wolby's father was a professor of, of you know, a university, and he wrote books, and he was a kind of like an intellectual in academia, but he wasn't so into Judaism. You know, that was in Germany in the early part of the 20th century, um, basically the extreme reform, which, um, which kind of rejected many of the basic principles of Judaism, rejected Israel, very anti-Zionist, um, um, just... Basically, all the um, tenets of Judaism were just uh, were just were just not held a very high esteem, and that's where he grew up. So my my uncle wrote for him, wrote to them to the parents of, of the of the deceased baby um, that tragedy. Uh, he wrote to them that um, when uh, when the grandfather's soul ascended to heaven. They uh, they said, listen, the soul's the soul's almost perfect. You know, he's such a great scholar, a tremendous character, uh, tremendous action. It's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful person. Um, very, very influential. Um, wrote many books in Torah. Almost perfect, but there was one thing lacking, and that is that his um, as a child he. Didn't, he didn't merit to have an, an upbringing and to be born into a family where the Torah values were, were held at a very high, uh, very high esteem. Thus, the soul had one little slight flaw. And therefore, the soul had to be sent down again and to find a family that was going to fix that flaw. And my uncle wrote to them, says, this soul of your, of your child was the same soul of, of the deceased grandfather. And you guys completed the circle. You gave him, you filled that one void that he had. Where he got this information from, I have no idea. And maybe, who knows if it's true or not. So he believes in reincarnation. Oh, 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 yeah. Reincarnation is a very, very, the idea of, of a soul being able to uh, be reinserted into some new body is an idea that goes very, very far back in Jewish philosophy. The idea of perpetual reincarnation, the, the um, Hindu idea is not a Jewish idea. Uh, but the idea of a, of a, of a soul need, needing a second go-round to fix something, that's... Like three I haven't seen that number as a limitation, but that's an idea that's been around for a long, long time in Jewish history. Was that supposed to make the parents feel better? So, 
who knows? Well, that was the idea. But um, the most painful suffering is where there's no meaning for it. You don't feel like you gain. It's just it's just a you know uh, amorphous. I think uh, that's the word used for it. Where it's just that, that gives them to hold on to. yes. When you feel that there was a purpose and something was achieved, who knows if he's right or if he's wrong? I don't know. Um, I, I think he is right. But but the idea of a soul needing just something to fulfill its purpose, and then once its purpose is fulfilled, somewhat like like the idea of an angel, where it's just there for one purpose, and after that, if if there's no purpose, there's no angel. Um, so if there's no purpose, then you know we we believe that we're here on a mission. Thus, if the mission has been accomplished, then that's it. We don't need to be here anymore. So thus, we don't look at it as punishment or pain, just as mission accomplished. And sometimes, you know, we look at uh, children who unfortunately uh, die in their childhood as being souls that needed just something to be done to them. And, and we don't look at that so much as suffering. We look at that more as, as it being a, um, just one final go-round to check off a box that was, that was unchecked uh, in a previous iteration of that soul. Yes, it's a, obviously it's a, this is a big idea, but that's just, uh, you know, quickly. So, to uh, recap uh, or encapsulate the ideas, um, number one, the idea is that there's multiple questions that need to be addressed. Number one, there's the emotional question, like Abraham, and like the fellow who read his uh, pull quote from Facebook, that's a very, very important question, and that will remain a question. That's a very hard question to try to attempt to grapple with. Uh, philosophically, there are many, many, many Jewish sources that spend a lot of time talking about it, uh, underscoring the importance of this issue. Uh, we took three of them over here, and we see a, a, like a progression that happens to Moses in his trying to understand this question. He asks the question multiple times. First time, he's not satisfied. God tells him, you don't understand it. A little bit later, he says, well, maybe now I understand it, and he gets somewhat of an answer. We see Rabbi Kiva, who seems to be at the core of this. Remember, Rabbi Kiva appears in two of the sources, which is also very interesting. There's some sort of link here between Moses and Rabbi Kiva. There's something very deep going on here uh, beneath the surface. But Rabbi Kiva kind of lived this idea. To him, when he saw his Rebbe, he saw his teacher suffering, what did he start doing? Yeah. Laughing. This is delightful. This is the idea, but it's an idea that Moses himself had a hard time with. If we feel like we have a hard time with it, we're in good company, like I said. Um, that's the idea. And I think it's, I, I like it as food for thought because when in Jewish philosophy, when we're, when we're faced with these existential dilemmas, it doesn't seem like the uh, attitude, the approach is to kind of sweep it under the rug and try to you know, uh, beat around the bush and try to yeah, avoid the issue. Uh, we address it, and we give real philosophical responses to very, very grave issues. Uh, that's the response, but I, I think that for us, if we feel like this is a an attitude that's very difficult for us to incorporate into our Weltanschauung, we should know that we're in, Weltanschauung means uh, worldview or perspective. Uh, we know that it doesn't, you know, we're in good company, because it seems like Moses himself had a hard time and God would tell him, listen, this is the way God thinks. And the idea being, in God's mind, the totally, if we were to isolate our spiritual perspective and ask that question, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do we face punishment in this world? 
The real answer is because it's a reward. Because we'd rather pay our fine in pesos versus dollars. That's the idea, guys. Thank you all for coming. It was lovely. And thank you, Rabbi Johnny, who's not even here, but he invited me to take over for him. And I apologize uh, for the late invitation. I'm happy everyone came. It was a delight to meet you, Isabel. Hope you come to future uh, classes and discussions. But once again, this is a very weighty discussion, and I'm very happy that we did it without. You know. Thank you. I appreciate that. Tons of fun, everyone. Tons of fun.